I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up unto the house of the Lord. That famous refrain of Psalm 122, verse number 1. It is a blessing that we've each been granted to assemble and to gather today to offer worship unto God, to do so in spirit and in truth, to appreciate the gathering of those of like precious faith. We celebrated in many ways as we gave thought to the earnestness of our gospel meeting this past week, as we had the opportunity to sing and to pray and to share fellowship with not only ourselves but surrounding congregations and those that came to be with us, visitors and others. And that was a challenging, recharging, encouraging time. And today, we continue our weekly studies, our weekly gatherings, just as the Bible demands. The regularity of God's Word does assist us, and today being that day that it is reckoned as Mother's Day, we do want to wish a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the audience. And it is a bit interesting that the very reading of this past week is a reading that at least brought before us yet again the very mother of Jesus. And it'll be she that we shall consider throughout much of our lesson this morning. In fact, as we begin some initial thoughts concerning that, I would invite you to consider the following with me. We did begin back in the 1st of January, a reading through the entirety of the Bible this year. We have now read some 401 chapters. That's roughly a third of the Bible. And as we continue that journey reading it through, we shall find time and again the challenging lessons, the records, those things that God would have us to know to live pleasingly before Him. I would invite you to also notice that the word mother, it seems fitting that it is Mother's Day that the word mother occurs 328 times in the Bible. Over 300 times reference is made to a particular mother or a group of mothers. And in particular, I would invite you to notice some of the references are extraordinarily diverse. Some of them are so very brief. For instance, the very mother of Timothy, mentioned only one time. By name, and as she is mentioned there, though, what a profound influence she had. Other mothers, it seems, occupy several chapters of reference. Perhaps very much like Isaac's mother, Sarah. It might be fair to say that Mary, too, occupies an extensive portion of, of references, and it'll be to her that we shall give our attention this morning. Just a few moments ago, from Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Brother Bill read for us on that occasion a reference to the mother of Jesus, and it'll be that particular passage that will expound for us some interesting reflections that will assist us in our own personal walk with God. Perhaps it's fair to say that our opening discussion then ought to be a consideration of this. I would invite you to give thought to the very life of Mary. What about her station, her position? I realize that there have been through the centuries some who have elevated Mary to a position that she does not occupy in the Scriptures. She is not the mediator of man. That's only Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5. She is not the one that made available to you and me redemption. That's only the blood of Christ, Ephesians 1.7. But it is fair to at least ask in light of that text in Acts 1.14 a reflection of these. We remember in Luke chapter 1, a text we read not too many weeks ago now in our reading, that that angel Gabriel came to her and informed her of some amazing things. She was told that despite the fact she had not known a man, she would give birth. She would conceive, and that which would be born of her was to be the very son of the highest. 
He would be the one to reign over the kingdom of Jacob, and of his kingdom there would be no end. She was furthermore told on that occasion that the Holy Spirit would come upon her, and it would be that by that means that she would be with child. She, in fact, would not know a man to that point. As you give thought to those matters, notice that Simeon also told her some matters that no doubt weighed often upon her mind. Not too long after the birth of Jesus, when that Simeon was there present while they made the dedication of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, you may recall that in that pair of verses, Simeon said to her that this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And not only that, he, looking Mary straight in the face, said, A sword shall also pierce through thy soul also. Doesn't that indicate that Mary herself would find herself in a position of great difficulty due to the fact of who this child would be? A sword would pierce thy soul also. As you move beyond that, look at these things with me. When Jesus was the age of twelve, and Mary and Joseph took him there to Jerusalem, you may recall in verses 48 and following that a conversation between Mary and Jesus took place. A part of that conversation went like this. Mary said to him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? When he tarried behind and wasn't with them, and remember some three days was the distance by which they had gone without Jesus being in amongst them. Jesus replied by saying, Wist ye not that I must be about my Father's business? It may well be in light of all those things. It brings us then to realize as the years passed, Mary was present when our Lord performed His first miracle. When He turned water to wine, it was really at her prompting in John chapter 2, and on that occasion, it was Jesus who wrought that miracle on the occasion of that turning the water into wine. As all these things took place, picture again Mary's reaction. She knew exactly that Jesus wasn't born in a natural way. She knew well, having appreciated the nature of His miracles, the character of what the angel had said to her, she knew this was no normal child, if you please. She knew He was from God. She knew He was a blessed gift not only to her, but to the entirety of the human family. It is for those reasons I would invite you to notice. In John 19, it's expressly said that Mary was present at the scene of the cross. It is in that regard I would invite you to picture this with me. Imagine you giving birth. We all know how much a mother loves her child, at least in normal cases. We understand that there are no bounds beyond which she would go to ensure the safety, the livelihood, the well-being, and yet Mary was there. She had watched, perhaps from a distance, drive the nails into his hands and feet. She maybe had watched from a distance as they had beaten his back bare in that scourging. She maybe had watched at a distance as they had so blasphemously and with such difficulty treated him with such insult. She was there. She knew very well he was the Son of God. She knew again that she had known no man to give birth to him. She knew very well that the characteristic of that one was so very unique. I wonder what raced through her mind on those occasions. The heart of a mother... 
It is for those reasons I would ask you to give thought that there are many mothers in this audience today, and yea, many mothers who occupy this earth. But as we give thought to those mothers, isn't it true some of them are guided by the marvelous truth of God? Others are not so much. I would invite you to think with me about Mary and this text in Acts 1.14, what it speaks about her, what it says about the nature of her livelihood and being. As Mary witnessed these endings of Jesus' life in the flesh, she had some 33 years earlier given birth to Him. And now as all the things converged to His death, you may remember she had showed concern for Him back in Mark chapter 3. She and his half-brothers, if you please, had come to him, and they had desired to see him. And it would seem from the text their desire had been to warn him about problems. Others were out to get him. The authorities did not have his best interest in heart, and yet as they came to warn him of these things or perhaps bring that information to him, did it lead us to see these matters that were next? She knew very well the power in this one. We've already made notice about she was present at the first miracle. How many other of the miracles did she know about? Probably many of them. The heart of a mother. Here was her son, her oldest son, we might add. The one who, in fact, was born with such unique circumstances. The one who, in fact, she had been forewarned that a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. This one that would be the very Savior of the world. Gabriel had told her he would reign over the throne of David forever. Gabriel had told her that he, in fact, would be the one to bless all nations. Joseph had also been told that that son born to Mary would be the very one that would save his people from their sins. Again, Mary and Joseph alike surely must have appreciated the extraordinarily great one that would be born to them. It is with that in mind some following scenes on that slide took place. Please think with me about these. It is now with a heightened appreciation. What about that ruthless beating that Jesus endured? What about that crucifixion of such torture that was His? Can you imagine being there and that was your child being treated that way? I know many of us today as parents, we are in positions and it breaks your heart when something difficult happens to your child. You take them to get a shot and you hurt more than they do. Despite the fact they're the ones that cry, nonetheless, your whole body clings with terror when you know that needle is pierced through their skin. Can you imagine watching them drive nails into your child? Can you imagine watching others who hate Him so much treat Him in that way? And yet, Mary witnessed it. It is in regard to that witnessing, might I suggest, the victory that comes to you and me, may we never allow it to fall far from our mind. In Romans chapter 5, as Paul himself reflected upon these matters, did he not say, verses 6 and following of Romans the 5th chapter, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. 
But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. That victory that you and I enjoy, Paul lifted so high as he concluded, you and I were the ungodly ones. You and I were the ones to whom God commended His love. You and I were the ones that have been saved by His life, reconciled by His blood. Mary witnessed all of those things. She saw that bloodshed. And you and I, through the eye of faith, can appreciate the power latent in it as well. You might also appreciate this passage in 2 Corinthians 5. Same author, different congregation to whom he was writing. On that occasion, Paul said, The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That death of Christ bought for you and me redemption, for you and me the opportunity to go to heaven, the opportunity to be forgiven of sin. And that love of Christ does constrain, restrain us, so that we strive to walk dutifully, righteously, and godly. A marvelous matter to appreciate what Mary saw, isn't it? It may well be in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 10, we know, notice very carefully and also very bluntly that Paul writing to the Thessalonians said, He died for us. That death that He bore, such selflessness, such willingness on His part to execute that plan of human salvation. Maybe finally, isn't it then an element in victory in Revelation 1.18 when that same one, Jesus, could say, I was alive, was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. And you and I too can be alive forevermore, spiritually, in unison with the God of heaven. Amazingly, we appreciate then that what Mary saw only leads us to appreciate this which follows. These matters that Mary no doubt felt, I've tried to highlight what surely must have crossed her mind. We have some passages that give us some information, but I would invite you again to give thought to the motherhood of Mary. Now, she's not the mother of God in the sense of what some in the world today proclaim, but she is one to at least present before us some interesting thoughts today. Do you suppose she felt disappointment? Her son, the one who had never sinned, the one who never in any way had acted in an inappropriate fashion, and yet she watched him crucified that way? It seems so unfair. It seems so unright. But yet you'll notice she persevered. Those events that Brother Beale read for us from Acts chapter 1, notice that they occurred several weeks after the crucifixion. She didn't give up on her faith. She didn't cast aside the nature of what had brought her to that point in life. Despite the fact she'd watched her son nailed to a cross again many weeks before, she was still involved with prayer. She was still associated with the apostles. She was involved in supplication to the God of heaven. Doesn't that speak about the strength of her faith?
the characteristic of what surely must be well understood. Not only that matter and disappointment. Do you suppose she felt, at least at the time of the crucifixion, any element of confusion? Here was the Son of God, the very one the angel had told her would occupy that position, and yet died? One might have thought that the Son of God would never allow Himself to die like that. One might have thought that He would reign in royal splendor or perhaps in regal wonderment, and yet to die like that? Do you imagine there was any confusion at any point in her life? Surely as the crucifixion drew near and as that event portrayed itself in front of her. But might we say that confusion did not give way to hopelessness. She still continued in her association with those that were the followers of Jesus, and she seems to have been strong and fervent in supplication and in prayer. Consider yet another possibility. What about the very heartache of watching her eldest child die? We each know today how devastating it can be when a child dies. Sometimes a parent simply is not able to handle it much thereafter. And yet she, from all the evidence and that text in Acts 1.14, is the final mention of Mary in all the Bible. But isn't it a hopeful one? Isn't it a strong one? Isn't it a powerful one? I'd invite you to read it with me. In Acts 1.14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with His brethren. We seemingly find that Mary was still involved in that which she knew was part and parcel of the very faith of Jesus. Though He was gone, though they'd killed Him, she continued in earnestness and in fervent dedication to that which was His teaching, and His associates did the same. Might I invite you near the bottom of that slide to bring the application to today. As we shall notice as we continue in our lesson this morning, the heart of a godly mother in many ways isn't that much different than the heart of a godly father. But would you notice these things? First of all, a godly woman bases her life upon those truths and teachings found in the blessed Word of God. That by which she guides is not culture or society. It's not merely a feeling or an emotion. It is based upon the heartfelt conviction of that which is the setting forth of the Word of God. Many a life has been blessed by a godly mother. One who provided the proper guidance, not only in a provisional fleshly way, but that guidance that emanates all the way to the deep roots of spirituality. In Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We notice also in verse 140 of that chapter, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. In verse 128, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Maybe we could recollect also verse 142 of that chapter, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. We can be thankful for a mother who believes all of that and who not only lives her life in accordance thereto, but insists that her children do the same. It might well be that a godly woman, a godly mother is such a grand blessing that some additional thoughts come before us. 
the Bible does on a number of occasions bring to our recollection those that would fall in a category like this. The closing verses of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, beginning in verse 10, highlight that virtuous woman. In fact, for your reference, it's actually recorded in the bulletin today. Proverbs 31, verses 10 and following is actually what occupies the majority of the opening page of the bulletin. It seems fitting to observe it as that book of Proverbs closes. Solomon had some words to share. And you'll notice that the last couple of chapters are in fact added to that great lesson of Proverbs. And they're added as personal reflections by Solomon or one of his close associates. The latter references to this virtuous, godly woman. What things characterize her life? Among other things... You notice that she loves, defends, and supports her husband in his endeavors that are right, in his endeavors that are appropriately directed according to the will of God. She is there. A godly mother, you see, a godly woman, is a strong component of that family to be sure. However, that isn't nearly everything. For you'll notice, mention is made more than once in that same passage about the influence that she has on her children. Not only does she provide for them in those ways we mentioned earlier, but she provides for them in a remarkable attribute of strength spiritually. I would invite you to make mention with me about the very scene of Hannah and her son Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, again a reading that we read just a few days ago now, we remember that Hannah, though she was barren, she prayed unto God for a child. She prayed for a son. God heard that prayer, answered it appropriately, and to her and to her husband was born a boy. As a part of that prayer unto God, she had uttered a vow that she would give him unto the Lord if God would only grant her a son. After he reached appropriate age, she did that which was her vow. She took him to the very temple... She took him to that place, and there he was, of course, under the tutelage of Eli. But did you notice, every year she brought, taking care of him, she brought him a coat, she brought him the various things necessary for his well-being physically, but she took care to insist that he be in the presence of God. Today, a godly woman, a godly mother, can do nothing any stronger for the well-being of her children than to insist they remain in the presence of God. They live a life of faithfulness, uncluttered by the matters that society can often send their way. They are founded upon the rock and the strong rock at that, which is the truth of God. Moses made mention of that, didn't he, in Deuteronomy 32.4. A mention like that one only begs that which also follows. I would invite you to consider the following. The preparation mentioned... In Proverbs 31, it does expressly say that this virtuous woman is involved in the preparation of her household. That preparation is that which then is a part of her obligation and her duty before God. She seeks to prepare them not only for the onslaughts of this life, but really for the onslaughts, if she's wise, of that which will come much later. It is challenging then to think, isn't it, about the heart of a mother, a godly mother, and the heart of a godly father. Look at what follows that. 
I would invite you to reflect, as perhaps many of us often have, upon the mother of Timothy. Again, she isn't mentioned frequently in the Word of God, but what mention is made is of such profound character. We read in 2 Timothy 3, verse number 15, that in particular, from a babe, Timothy, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. And yet we notice back in chapter 1 that there was an unfeigned faith characteristic of both Timothy's mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois. And Paul was quick to say, Timothy, it's in you as well. From whence did that faith come? It didn't develop accidentally. May we say that if most of the time an individual that's a faithful Christian, it's possible for conversions, of course, to happen, and we yearn and pray for those things. But often the seeds were planted by godly parents. Parents who had a desire to at least know what the truth was and a desire to appreciate that that truth stands high above anything else that this earth has to offer. When a child sees that in the life of his or her mother, his or her father, it is an overwhelming thing. That leads directly to these next comments. Such a woman as that is clothed in both honor and strength, isn't she? The Scriptures, in fact, use those very words in Proverbs 31, 27. As she is clothed in that way, notice what an ornamental clothing, what a special clothing it is. This day being Mother's Day, we can certainly be thankful for godly mothers. We can be thankful for those individuals who not only gave birth physically, but strove to follow the pattern set forth by these mothers whom we've considered today. The lessons, in fact, extend even to here. It is so very important then for children to appreciate that attribute of faithfulness in the lives of their parents. I didn't include it on the slide, but I thought it appropriate at this point to make mention of a statistic. Several years ago, a study was done. As this study polled various youngsters, even those up into the young adulthood, the following observation became very clear. An overwhelming 93% of those polled, if they were still faithful in those young adult years of life, it was the absolute involvement of both parents that were a part of that faithfulness and of that faithfulness on the part of the youngster. If only one of the parents was faithful, that number dropped from 93% to only a bit over 50%. If both of the parents were faithful but not engaged really, they might attend a service every now and then, that number dropped basically all the way to less than 15%. And if only one attended every now and then, basically. That is to say, the degree of faithfulness, the heartfelt instillment of the Word of God wasn't there. The number dropped to a mere 7%. The lesson's easy to see, isn't it? If we want our children to be faithful Christians, years from now, we need to be training them now as godly mothers and fathers so that they will see in us that which is a dedicated life of a Christian. We notice that Mary apparently had that kind of behavior. Look at some of these final remarks in the time of our lesson this morning. I would ask you to appreciate. We do remember that Mary did bear some physical children, of course, after Jesus was born. She did know Joseph, her husband, then. 
Isn't it rather fascinating that those brothers, Jesus' half-brothers, didn't believe in Him in John 7 verse 5. They didn't think He was the Messiah. They didn't trust that He was the one from God. They did not have faith in the nature of who He was. But did you notice there the text that Brother Bill read in Acts 1.14? It says that not only was the mother of Jesus Mary involved with the apostles in these prayers, it says his brothers were too. By this time they had come to believe. By this time they had had a part of change of heart and mind. I wonder what in part prompted that change. Could it have been the continued strength and dedication of Mary? Could it have been what they witnessed as the Lord Himself was crucified? Perhaps all the above. But it is significant that Mary apparently was a steadfast, involved one in light of that faithfulness regarding her son. As we come to the close of that particular slide, I would invite you to appreciate Paul's famous statement in Ephesians chapter 6. We are told in that text, as well as a quotation from the sister passage in the Old Testament, Honor thy father and thy mother, for this is the first commandment with promise. To honor one's mother today, being Mother's Day, we do appreciate the blessing of a godly mother. Let us say thank you. Let us appreciate who she is and what she does. And as we've used Mary today to prompt our thinking, let us close the lesson by asking about the life that you and I lead. Our mother cannot stand for us on the day of judgment. I'll stand there for myself. I cannot stand there for her either. Each one of us shall give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. In summary and conclusion, Mary saw many things, witnessed many things relative to the life of Jesus. By the time of Acts 1.14, we noticed she hadn't lost her faith. She was still involved in supplications and prayers. Today, what about you and me? Is our faithfulness characteristic of what it should be? Have we fallen short of the example our mother would wish us in faithfulness to have lived? You and I have but this one life to lead. Are you right with God today? Am I? If all is well with your soul, rejoice in that fact and give thanks unto God. But if all isn't well, there could never be a better day than this one. To come before God, to come before the very one who sent His Son to die for you, that plan of salvation demands that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, and be humbly and submissively baptized. If we could be of assistance to you in that regard today, what a joyous day it would be. If you have known the faithfulness that once was characteristic of a life devoted unto the Lord Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all, Acts 10.38. But if you have slipped from that faithfulness, you have been encumbered with the thorns and the cares and the other distractions of life to the point that you've become entangled in them, 2 Peter 2.20. This would be a perfect day to come back to your first love. As we've noted earlier, there is much false teaching relative to Mary, but we've tried to highlight what Mary must have seen. And we've also noted that this final mention of her does present a lesson in perseverance and in persistence. If you haven't been persevering, why not come back to your first love? Jesus is sweetly calling you.
He wants you back faithfully decide. If we could be of help in prayer on your behalf, as was the case for Simon in Acts chapter 8, we'd be delighted to pray with you. We'd be delighted to pray on your behalf. You need to let us know, though, the way we can do that. Brother Adam has chosen this hymn of encouragement. If this is a time that you have recognized the need to come in a way to make things right between you and your God, why not do it now while together we stand and sing?